Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 31 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I have Darcy Small and Brie Kerr from Bugisu. Bugisu is a closed loop coffee supplier for workplaces, and it's soon to have a rebrand, which we'll be hearing about shortly. Brie is the director of Impact, and Darcy is the co-founder. Thank you both for being here. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Now we've just overcome a world of IT issues. <laughs> uh, we are in your fantastic office space called The Commons. How long have you guys been in here for? We moved in in early Feb, so this is actually a new building that's just been built. Um, the Commons started in Melbourne. Um, yeah, so it's a real community hub of creatives and lots of social enterprises and charities and things like that in here. Awesome. It's it's a real novelty to get to record this in person because, as I told you, usually I'm in my wardrobe uh, on Skype with, with clothes falling on me, but today we're in a cute little recording studio navigating IT issues, but I think this is nicer. I think this is my preference. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so um, I haven't given much of an intro there because I want to leave that to you guys. So, Darcy, can you take us back to when you founded Bugisu? Um what, what was the reason for starting up this organisation? Cool. So I am a graduated student from renewable, engine- renewable Energy Engineering at UNSW. About a year and a half ago, I replied to an email that we got from the engineering department saying, would you like to spend your winter holidays working in subsistence farms in northern rural Uganda? I replied to that email saying, yep, it sounds really interesting, but I'd love a little bit more information about what it's like. And I waited, I didn't hear back. And then maybe a month later, I got a reply that said, congratulations, you've been selected, you'll be going straight to Uganda. So with very little preparation or understanding of what we were going there for, I jumped on a plane with 10 other uh, engineering students. One of those was Brody Smith, who's our co-founder. The idea was that we'd work with local agricultural students and apply our problem-solving skills as engineers to help subsistence farmers move towards a cash economy. We found that I guess I'd only ever applied my engineering skills to the Australian context, so applying it within a place like Uganda was really, really difficult. But one of the students that we were working with had grown up where they grow coffee, and he said, one of the things that you can absolutely definitely help us with is if you manage to sell this coffee back in Australia. It's really, really high quality, and then that can fund impact programs that are already working on the ground. And that was pretty much what sparked it. We took the coffee back and had it tasted. It was really high quality. And we've spent the next, you know, two years developing Bugisu Project, which is now to be Kua. 
Wow, incredible. I love that you didn't actually apply. Is that, <laughs> is that what I got from that story? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I didn't intend, there definitely wasn't an application form. It was one of those funny opportunities that kind of came my way and I just happened to be in the right space. And I think the other students on the trip um, felt the same way. Wow. Oh, wow. So serendipitous. Okay. So you went over there. Um, was it part of your study? Like, was it a subject or was it just a summer program? It actually got counted as work experience. So as part of engineering, you have to do professional placements. So I've done that in companies based in Australia. And then a number of days from that trip also contributed to what you need to do to pass or graduate as an engineer. Right. Okay. And at what point did you know that you were going to be starting a business out of the experience? Um, probably a year later. So initially we, Brody was absolutely the believer of we can do this. And four of us came back essentially smuggling coffee in our backpacks back to Sydney. <laughs> Sorry, <And> customs? <laughs> <laughs> well, coffee is actually allowed to come back to Australia pretty much from everywhere because Australia doesn't have a big coffee industry itself. But yeah, there were four of us. We had a Facebook message and Brody was like, let's do this, let's do this. And you know, um, we were all super busy and I guess I was the polite one that said, yeah, okay, let's give it a go. And we wondered if it could be like a student project or some uh, NGO initiative. And then we got thrown into the founders program at UNSW and they pointed us down the business business path saying this makes the most sense. Wow. Awesome. I'd love to hear more about the founders program at UNSW. But first, Brie, when did you then become involved in this project? So I joined about a year ago. The boys actually went on a second trip. So after that first trip, they came back, got the coffee tested and realised how good it was. Um, And then when they returned from their second trip, I met with Brody and he said, we want to do something, but we're not experts in development. We don't really know how to go about generating impact that's sustainable and and meaningful. Um, you know a little bit more than we do. Um, so I was in the final year of my degree at that time and had done a few things overseas. And so, yeah, they uh, tricked me into it. And, um, yeah, I've been with them for about a year and set up the international partnerships and relationships and where we send our money. Wow. Okay. So I guess what I find interesting here is you didn't need to necessarily make this impactful. Like it could have just been a, a business operating out of Uganda, importing coffee into Australia, but it was, was it a really important consideration for you to make sure that the impact on communities was significant? Yeah, I think um, that trip to Uganda was the first time I'd been traveling for the purpose of, I guess, learning or working with communities. And I had always looked at how we can apply renewable energy to Australia, and that's still a super interesting space. But then travelling to Uganda, I saw the energy landscape there is so entirely different and there's so much potential for things like solar power. So I was really interested in how what we learn in an amazingly privileged situation like studying at UNSW can be applied to places like Uganda and rural communities around the world. And I think for us, coffee was an opportunity to explore that side of where we can take our lives immediately, nearly. And um, it was obviously, we had developed partnerships and it made sense to work with the people that we'd met and learnt from on the ground that first trip. Okay, so you said there that Uganda is is a suitable space for more solar energy. Um, 
Can you tell us a bit about that and what the connection for you is between investing in local infrastructure and coffee? At this stage, and I, <laughs> I'd love to make a connection between solar energy and coffee at some point in the future, but I haven't worked out exactly how to do that. But for me, it was looking at the, at the household level how a technology that's up and coming like uh, decentralised solar power can really change someone's life and give them access to services that they've never had access to before. And I found that really, really exciting. And then that's also been paired with new financing mechanisms. So I think it's all just linked to like the SDG around energy access really enables a whole lot of those other SDGs. So I think it's super, super important. And I think I'm also trailing off away from your question. <laughs> no, 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 you, you've answered it well. Exactly. Like what this is about is increasing um income at the household level um, so that households can have access to the goods and services that they need. And Brie, you're much better placed to talk about that than me. So maybe I'll ask you the same question. What is the connection between this organisation and and increasing well-being at the household level in Uganda? Yeah, I guess probably the most direct connection is our, I guess, quite deliberate choice of our impact partner. So our impact partner, Love Mercy, runs a program called Sense for Seeds, and that program, I guess, delivers um, impact at the household level um, in its in what it is, in its nature. Um, so do you want me to kind of describe Sense Please. for Seeds? Yep. Yeah, we, we have had Caitlin on the show, as <laughs> our loyal listeners would know. Um, but if you can talk about the connection to Sense for Seeds, that would be great. Yeah, so Sense for Seeds... For us, the way that we support Sense for Seeds is for every six kilograms of coffee we sell here in Australia, one woman is brought into the Sense for Seeds program in Uganda. What the Sense for Seeds program looks like is one Ugandan woman getting a bag of seeds, around 30 kilograms of seeds, that she can then plant on her subsistence plot, generally a garden alongside her house, which then gives her... Um, access to another seed loan in the year thereafter, or she can sell portions of her crop for cash. Um, so it's kind of that really sustainable development that is self-sustaining and quite cyclical in how it works. And um, I guess can can be quite infinite in terms of a loan being returned again and again and again um, and being reused again and again and again. Um, so for us, I guess in terms of linking it back to um, household income and also household well-being and um, because I think development can't always be measured in metrics of money um, and income. And so I think another thing that we love about Love Mercy is, yes, they're increasing people's base uh, economics, but they're also increasing people's well-being. And they do a lot of metrics around ensuring that people in their program are happy and thriving and, you know, a, a kind of... Uh, developing in ways that aren't just financial, which I think is really powerful and really important for us. I agree. And Love Mercy partnered with Huber Social, um, with Georgie, who we've also had on the show, <laughs> such a small world. And I love what Huber Social does because they are measuring, like you said, non-financial metrics, like um, I feel safe in my home and I feel um, empowered and purposeful and those really important non-financial metrics. So I, I think that's awesome. Why is it so important for you to have an impact partner? Like how, how does that... Uh, how does that impact upon your business? I think for us, it is 
um, at the core, we are not development experts and development is an incredibly complex space. And if you can partner with organisations that have proven impact and proven success and kind of uplift or bolster what they're doing, that is so much more impactful than trying to do development yourself. Um, I also think that presence is really important in a country and Love Mercy definitely has those you know, incredibly strong relationships with the communities that they work with. Um, and we just wouldn't have that. So we'd much prefer to, yeah, I guess, bolster what they're doing and, and support something that is successful. Because you don't have an on-the-ground presence in Uganda, do you? No, we've got an amazing partner that supplies us coffee. So we have impact in the way that we um, source from them. And then we've got Love Mercy, as, as Bree said, which is our partner on the other end of the value chain. Okay, right, fantastic. So I have I have an observation that has come up across many podcast episodes now. So many organisations are in Uganda. And I don't know if it's just that I'm like exclusively talking to organisations in Uganda, but why why do you think it's such a popular country to work in in the African continent and, and why less so other countries? I think Uganda is tormented by a history of decades of war and that was... Um, a lot of my friends, in terms of what their understanding is of Africa, they can pick out Uganda and some of the horrible things that have happened there. So perhaps there's that interest from countries like ours to do development work back over there. And from Con- we met with a number of development agencies while we were in Uganda, and they said that it is, to a degree, the, the favourite child um, in terms of development in that region. I think it's also stable enough for organisations to have relationships and work going on on the ground at the moment. Um, For us, it it just happened because UNSW, through um, their vice-chancellor, had um, previously worked in Uganda and had set up relationships with universities there. So that was that initial email that I talked about and that was why it started for us in Uganda. But in the future, we want to replicate that model in other coffee-growing regions, so... Um, yeah, we think it should happen everywhere. Wow, that's a really exciting prospect. Uh, let's get back to that. Can you you mentioned UNSW again there? So I'm really interested in how universities support um, social enterprises overseas and specifically support their students to develop social enterprises. So how has UNSW supported you, and what was the founders project? We are a special case and we were super lucky. As I said, the Vice-Chancellor was personally involved in setting up the relationships with Uganda. So when Brody and I came back and said, yeah, we're looking at setting up this coffee initiative, he actually brought us in for a meeting and said, this is amazing, this is exactly what I want my students to do, how can I help? And that's something that not all students get, that's for sure. Um, so the first thing that he pointed us towards was the, the person that runs the division of enterprise and that's how we went down the business path. So through them we've got a mentor that meets with us as frequently as we need them to and also have access to their accelerator programs to basically grow what is legally incorporated as a charity um, but operates with a mindset of you know a fast growth business or startup. Right. Okay. Fantastic. And so nowadays, um, do you still have that relationship with UNSW? Um, half of us are still students. So ah, that, that, great. <laughs> that helps. We also have about 16 students that we email every week and they come in and out for project work. And we have a meeting on Wednesday, actually, with the vice chancellor again. So um, I would say, yeah, it's 
UNSW's been instrumental in helping us get to where we are and we hope that that stays because it's so important that kind of relationship. Awesome. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And that's a really encouraging story of how universities can support their students to, um, to develop and to scale social enterprises. Okay, so you've been doing this um, a little while now. So Brie, can you describe the impact that, um, that the business has had in Uganda so far? Yeah, so we actually had a session with Caitlin from Love Mercy the other day and we made our first donation. So we've just put 50 women through the program, um, which is pretty amazing. I think outside of our Love Mercy impact, um, you probably know the statistics about saved coffee grounds. Oh, how many? Yeah, we've probably sold between three and 500 kilograms of coffee, all yeah. of which we bring back from the workplaces and turn into new products or send to community gardens. Yeah, so I think, yeah, on the social impact side, about 50 women have gone through the program and then on the environmental side, yeah, hundreds of kilos have been saved from landfill and repurposed, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. And I think that's a unique thing about you guys is that you're not selling to individuals, right? Like you're not in stores. Mm -hmm. You're just selling to corporates and office spaces. So why did you make that decision? Um, full disclaimer is that none of us are, are coffee experts. We did this based on wanting to drive impact and we're also really passionate about the environmental side of things. We've noticed that employers are more and more moving towards the corporate social responsibility initiatives and that's largely driven by employees kind of demanding action. So we thought that coffee was a really cool vehicle to allow us to play in that space and show employers and their employees that you can do something every day that makes an impact in both socially and environmentally. So it was a bit of a, we can't compete with cafes because we don't know enough about coffee, although we're learning, and this is probably where we can make the most impact. Yeah, definitely. And so I'm interested in what sort of conversations you've had with businesses, like what's the uptake been like amongst businesses? I had um, a funny one yesterday. So I um, had a meeting with an amazing guy that knows a lot more about coffee than me. He gets coffee for his workplace and he said, okay, cool. Your coffee tastes good and it's ethically sourced. So what? And that's pretty true because everyone says their coffee tastes great. And What's really good is many, many coffee suppliers are also making an effort to trace it back to where it comes from and do the right thing by farmers. I think for us, it's operating at, yes, it tastes great, it has to, but it's also operating at the nexus of social and environmental impact and brings in that element of the circular economy, which almost no one else is doing yet in a way that educates employees about that whole principle. And I think that's where we get the most positive feedback from workplaces is that that closed loop nature is really unique. Yeah. So what's your target workplace then? Like if you had to describe the sort of workplace that suits your coffee best, who are they? I think the perfect customer for us is any business that has engaged staff. So if their staff are engaged in what they're doing in terms of CSR, in terms of just office environment, they're the best because you get champions in the office that love the coffee, share the story of what we're doing, um, and I guess referral is a really strong source farce. Um, yeah, I think at the moment we're working with a lot of kind of uh, progressive tech startups, um, design agencies, so maybe people that are more on the front foot. 
Um, but we would love, love to get some big corporates on board. Um, yeah. yeah. Happy workplaces. Happy workplaces. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a great trend that you have picked up on there. And I see this a lot in my own work that corporate Australia is driving so much of the progress we're seeing in the social sector. And it is largely because employees are more engaged than ever. And employees want to know about things like where the coffee in their workplace was sourced. And um, workplace giving is, is a trend that I particularly like. And we've seen such an upsurge in workplace giving over the last two years. Um, and I know at the, at the company I work for, we've got in excess of a million dollars of, of workplace giving going to hundreds of different charities in Australia every year. So I think what I love about your business model is that you're kind of riding the wave of the the CSR workplace giving um, uh, aware employees movement, which we are kind of still seeing in its infancy in Australia. Was that a very deliberate move for you or was this more the result of not wanting to compete with cafes? <laughs> um, I should probably give us some more credit. We did think about it and um, we had a lot of sessions with our mentor at UNSW about where's the most strategic place to enter the market. Um, we've all got a background where we probably would have been entering companies like the ones that we're supplying to, so have an understanding of those customers and where they're moving towards. Um, one thing I'm really interested in is like how do workplaces make that impact and that employee experience real rather than just you know a to- tokenistic CSR initiative and we're always challenging ourselves to make sure that coffee's not just a replacement but is actually something that makes employees think. It does sound like it was a really strategic point to enter the market and, and um, particularly amongst the millennial workforce I guess. Like, I, th- I think that um, so much of our workforce these days, I know where I work is, is one example where the vast majority are increasingly millennial. And um, being able to capture the interests of that market segment is a really important thing for social enterprises to be able to do. Yeah. Um, so I think your business model is, is incredibly impressive. Oh, Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm sure our friends listening all work in target workplaces. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yes, yes. and I think kind of leading on from what Darcy said before is something that's powerful about businesses is that it's a big collection of people, right? And if you've got a lot of people engaged with the idea, everyone knows someone and everyone knows someone that probably works at a business. So um, I think it can kind of escalate quite quickly. And we've even found that with referrals between like, oh, we've got this new coffee in our office. Oh, okay, I'll tell my fiancé about it or I'll tell mm. him, which is, yeah, really cool and can be quite infectious, I think. Yeah, it is. It, word of mouth is the most powerful strategy. Um, I think So I think what I find quite interesting with social enterprises like yourselves as well is the point at which you transition from depth to scale. And we've talked about this with quite a few guests on the show and there's, there's more and more social enterprises and charities that are very deliberately saying we don't want to scale, we want to focus on depth. So we want to focus on what we do now really, really well. Um, And scaling to other geographies is a sort of a secondary um, concern of ours. So I think both of you can speak to this point Um, because you did mention that you want to look into how you can expand this to other markets. Um, When would be the right point of time for you and and how, how deep are you going in Uganda? Cool. That's a um, really good question and something that we are always um, 
arguing about constructively as a team. There's depth, um, there's scalability, and then which is a huge focus of accelerator programs. And then something we are really focusing on is replicability. So everything that we create, we want it to be new, inspiring, and durable, and something that the model could be picked up and applied in another city, in another world, another country, not by us, and have the same impact. So in terms of how deep we've gone in Uganda, we've Bree's done an amazing job working with the impact partners on the ground to make sure that what we're funding makes sense and it has a huge impact on the ground and we'll continue to go to Uganda and make sure that that happens. We'd love to do the same thing in a country like Indonesia to demonstrate that, hey, this model can work in other places. And then at that point, when we're working in Sydney, we're profitable, we've got two coffee growing regions, it might be time to package it up and say, hey guys, does anyone else want to start this in another city or another place? And we'd love to, in a sense, open source that model. So we don't want to take over the world with Kua, but we want to show people that, hey, this is a different way to do coffee. It's a little bit better for the world. It's a little bit better for people. What do you reckon? Yeah, I I, I think you've explained that really well. And I think the idea of open sourcing your IP is both incredibly ethical, but also incredibly practical. Um, When you think about the logistics of you having, you know, if you are to scale this, will you be able to consistently have the impact that you have now? Probably not. Um, But open sourcing that IP and letting other players come on board and do it is a really exciting prospect. You mentioned Indonesia there. Is Is there an eagerness to get into this region of the world? There's something that makes sense about Indonesia, I think, for Australians. It's close by. Um, and uh, we have a very long history of relationships with Indonesia um, and they also so grow awesome coffee. Um, so I think for us and in terms of, because I think maybe one of the things with Uganda is that gap of kind of a face-to-face relationship. In Indonesia, it would be much easier um, to have that more c- consistently and constantly. Um, yeah, so I think there's a few reasons. The The country of choice, if we were to expand, is not definitive yet. Um, but, yeah, Indonesia has been played around, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think coffee is a particularly interesting crop in this region of the world as well. And a few years ago, I got to work on a coffee project up in Papua New Guinea, actually. And it was, we witnessed a trend there that unfortunately we've seen amongst a number of coffee growing uh, areas um, throughout the region, whereby we plant coffee because it's a high value export crop. It's also a fairly sustainable crop. Um, Where's all this agriculture knowledge come from? I don't know. I'm impressed. Look at me go. Um, it's also a fairly sustainable crop in the long term in terms of the, the health of the soil. And I can see myself getting like coffee experts emailing the show. Wildly wrong. We're always concerned um, with that. <laughs> uh, that. That's my experience of it. But unfortunately, what we would see is um, communities um, having palm oil developers come in and take out their coffee crops and replace them with palm oil plantations because in the short term, they were more profitable but unfortunately as we know with palm oil once you plant a palm oil plantation you can never ever grow anything there again for hundreds of years so I think there's also an education piece here um, around like how do we how do we work with communities to make sure that they understand the value of coffee as an export crop rather than us coming in and kind of just planting crops um, and expecting the community to do you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah. how do you manage the education around this? Well, I think as well, Zakukabora, our partner. So Zakukabora is our partner that we 
um, trade coffee directly with. And they are so all over that in terms of educating farmers around how valuable the crop is, how to best produce the crop, how to do all of those things so that um, it kind of goes beyond seeing coffee as um, something that they sell, but as this, you know, incredibly valuable resource that can, the better quality quality it is, um, the more money that they can make from it and things like that. So do you want to add anything about Yeah, I think, and again, I'm not an expert, um, but in either coffee or this side of development, but from my experiences being there a couple of times, it's almost a responsibility that we have as exporters to make sure that we come in with a long-term vision. And where the coffee's grown in Uganda, it's a spectacularly beautiful place. It's a volcano that is really, really steep and farmers are starting to grow more and more coffee as Ugandan coffee grows up. Um, sorry, goes up in value because of organisations like Zakukabora. What then happens when the rains come is that there's horrible soil erosion. And then because I guess there's a lack of understanding or that long-term view, farmers will continue to move up the hill and the issue just kind of proceeds upwards and upwards and upwards. And then from a perspective of someone like myself, which sees it as that beautiful place, you're also damaging the natural environment, which has huge potential in terms of ecotourism. So... It's a hard balance between coming in and saying, hey, this is, you should plant coffee, we'll buy it, and this is how you should do it, versus creating like an inclusive education system, which actually the farmers can be participants of and we all understand and it's best for everyone. Yeah. I like the, the reference you made there to ecotourism as well. And it's interesting to think that two sort of emerging parts of the Ugandan economy being exporting coffee and tourism. They've had tourism for probably longer than they've had coffee exports, I would guess. But um, it's, it's interesting to consider that sometimes whilst alone those two things are incredibly um, important and, and positive that sometimes they could be at odds with one another. Well, yeah, and you pretty much um, summarised like, a case for a new <laughs> business, which I think is actually being looked at by a number of people on the ground in Uganda where there's combining coffee with ecotourism. And people in countries like Australia love coffee and they also love travelling, so what an amazing combination to be able to go and visit the coffee farms, talk to the coffee farmers, learn about the farming processes, learn about sustainability and just get an understanding of the whole environment in terms of how this is happening. I've never heard of this before. So is coffee tourism a thing? There were, I am actually not sure if it's an established industry. It should industry. be a thing. <laughs> yeah, but um, some of the farmers we met, like they might have a piece of land that overlooks like a gorge with a huge waterfall and beautiful sunsets and they have coffee plantations and it just makes sense. We had an amazing experience there, but that was for work. I'm sure people would pay the same amount of money to do that for holiday. And, and I think increasingly tourism providers, the, definitely the more ethical um, tourism companies such as Intrepid um, are sort of making um, travellers aware of like this is a good consumer product to purchase and this isn't a good consumer product to purchase. And I think that's really important. Making sure we have informed consumers and informed tourists is another really important way to support local enterprises. Yeah, I think um, travelling in different regions around the world for me has opened my perspective well beyond Australia and given me a kind of... Um, oversight into hey this is how I live my life but it's not how everyone else in the world lives their lives and 
has kind of connected our like everyday consumption patterns to the impacts that that might have in a country that I've never heard of or seen before. And if tourism can play a role in l- allowing people to join the dots, that's probably a really, really powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's two questions I want to ask you before we wrap up. So firstly, the name change, which we've not touched on yet. So can you explain why you are rebranding? <laughs> Um, There's a few reasons. I think one of the reasons is obviously Bigusu Project was born out of this beautiful, beautiful region in Uganda called Bigusu where the coffee's grown, Um, but it's quite localised. So um, by kind of calling ourselves Bigusu, we're tied specifically to that region. Um, And I think the word project in relation to development is kind of problematic sometimes. So when we look at a project, it's kind of temporary, short term, Um, maybe lacks commitment sometimes or it's kind of like in and out Um, so we kind of wanted to shed that element and I think as well shed the element of we kind of started in being students and we kind of wanted to shed the cuteness of (laughs) of a project um, and become something more Um, so kua um, in Swahili means to grow Um, so it's kind of still that nice linkage to um, eastern Africa Um, and Uganda specifically and I think there's kind of a nice linkage of um, Swahili being a a bridging language between all of those regions and um, being a connector which is what we want to be um, as Kua. That's a beautiful explanation (laughs) and I think that's a really nice segue into my favourite question. Uh, What does success look like in 10 years for Kua? (laughs) That's a big question. Um, Let's go five years, actually. Let's go five years. That's a little bit (laughs) easier. I'm feeling generous We get this sort of question um, (laughs) when we find ourselves in pitch competitions all the time, and it's such a hard one to answer, particularly when you think that they might have, like, a correct or an incorrect answer. Um, Mm. You go, Brie. Okay. (laughs) Um, I think that something that we're exploring, another reason for the rebrand is we – Coffee is amazing and it's an amazing vehicle to kind of demonstrate things like the circular economy and connecting people to countries that are not their own. Um, So I think it's amazing for that. But there's so many other products that can be used in a circular fashion. So something that we're beginning to explore is kelp um, and seaweed and using that as a replacement for plastic. Um, So I guess Kua in five years will hopefully be a brand that um, kind of is looking at circular products, not only coffee but potentially kelp um, and other things. Um, Yeah, I think that's kind of the direction that we're heading and hopefully in five years we'll have some kelpie type things to talk about. Kelpie coffee. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Would you add anything? I would if. Someone somewhere or some organisation somewhere had copied what we do and allowed that to start a new organisation or improved what they were already doing and we were aware of that, then that would be successful for me because we've shown that it works and we've inspired someone else to take that on. Yeah, I love it. What a great vision. I think what you're both doing and and you and the rest of your team are doing is so inspiring. It's a fantastic business model. Um, You've clearly got a great focus on sustainability, building local ownership, scaling your impact, and it, it really is inspiring to chat to you both. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you.